Well, amen. Amen. Hey, if you've got your Bibles, and I hope you do, grab them. We're going to be in Acts chapter 18. Good morning. I'm glad that you are here worshiping with us here at the Church of 1122. At 1122, I've always got to tell you that we have other services that I would love for about 400 of you to check out uh, so that everybody could get a seat, etc. Well, we have a 722 service on Thursday night. Uh, we have a 9 a.m. service. I know that's early for some of you. We have this service, and then also tonight at uh, 5.22, we have another service. So if you really like this one, you know, you can grab a friend and bring them back to, to 5.22 tonight. And just to let you know, um, how's, five, how's 5.22 Sunday afternoons going? Last Sunday, our second one, there were 390 people here for our video service. Amen? That's super good. Because if 390 people couldn't be here in this room right now. So we're so glad that, that God is blessing that and that is working. Um. We're in week three of this, of this series called On Mission. Week one, we talked about the fact that God has called us to be on mission in this city. And, and we just celebrated a lot of the things that God has done through the Church of 1122 in this city. And also, just the reality that we are called to partner with other churches and other ministries and other believers in this city for the sake of the gospel. And then, last week, we talked about what it looks like to be on mission wherever you are. That, that being on mission isn't a destination. It's not about where you are. It's about who you are. And so wherever you are, that we're called to be on mission. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission. Oftentimes it gets translated, um, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. But really, it means as you are on the go. So wherever you're going, work, school, your neighborhood, wherever, God has placed you on purpose to be on mission for him. And I, I was going through uh, the prayer cards this week. Every person on staff prays for every card every week. So I was going through this one with, this week, from this past week. And it starts out this way. Teachers are on mission every day in the classroom. And school started last week. And yes, and amen to the teachers that are on mission in classrooms. And I probably, if I was smart enough, I would have done this last week before school started. But better late than never. So I want to um, confirm and affirm that teachers, we, we do believe that you are on mission in the classroom. And so if you were a teacher or an administrator, would you just please stand up, uh, regardless of the school, it could be public, private, and uh, amen. <laughs> now, remain standing, teachers, remain standing, because <clears throat> we live in a culture that says they're trying to remove God from the classroom. And here's what I know. As long as you're in the classroom, then God is in the classroom because God has placed you in that classroom on purpose. And I know you're trying to figure out how to share the gospel in the appropriate way. And so just know that, that we want to be the kind of church where you can come here and you get fed and fueled and prayed for and prayed up so that tomorrow morning when you go into your classroom, that you are stepping into the mission field and you've got a church behind you that's praying for you so that you can demonstrate the love and the patience and the goodness and the grace of Jesus Christ to those kids that God has placed under your care. And so we're going to commission you, commission you just like we do for a mission trip, but it's to your class tomorrow morning, regardless of what you, you teach, all right? especially like you math teachers, right? We're really going to pray for you. And so uh, if, you, if, if you're sitting around these folks, if this weirds you out a little bit, it gets worse. So just reach over and grab their hand or put your hand on their shoulder or just reach out to one of these teachers or administrators and let us pray for our teachers going on mission every week of their life. Dear Father in heaven, Lord, I thank you and I praise you um, that you have given these men and women the gift of teaching. And Lord, I thank you that it wasn't just genetics or schooling that determined 
that they, would, um, that they would excel at teaching math or science or English or whatever it is, God. And it was not the, the school board that placed them in their classroom, but sovereign God, you have placed each one of these teachers in their classroom for this season to be, to be a light in a dark place, to be a city on a hill, that when those students, God, I pray that when they see the way their teacher loves them and cares for them and is patient with them and forgives them, they would see the gospel, and that as they see the good works of their teachers, God, they would be able to give you in heaven praise. Lord, I pray um, for just revival and an outreach in our schools through these teachers. And then, Lord, I pray week after week after week that these teachers could come back in this place, that they could be fed and fueled by your spirit and with your word, and that they would know that they are loved, loved, they are cared for, and they are commissioned by the Church of 1122 to be on mission in whatever school they go out into tomorrow. We pray it in the good, strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. All right. Thank you, teachers. <clears throat> I feel like when all a bunch of teachers stand up, I kind of get a little bit nervous. I feel like I owe you as a career an apology just for some of the things I put you people through. So, <clears throat> so we're in week three of, of On Mission, and today what we're going to talk about is what it means to be on mission as a church because I don't know if you are aware of this, but mission drifts, all right? Vision leaks and mission drifts. And organizations can start out to do something, and over time, they can begin to drift away from that very thing that they intended to do. In fact, did you know, speaking of school, the original mission statement of Harvard University was to prepare pastors and ministers in the gospel for their churches, so, I'm not saying, I mean, Harvard's a great school. I'm sure if you go here, none of you got a chance of getting in. But it's a great school. But they may be a little off mission, right? That I don't think they're doing what they, intentional, what they were intentional about early on. In fact, um, a diploma from Harvard says, it says it in Latin, but it says truth for the sake of Christ and his church. And so, they may have drifted a bit from their original Mission, And so what we're going to do is we're going to study Acts chapter 18, verses uh, 24 through 28. And I want to read it in its entirety, and then I'm going to come back through, and we're just going to unpack those few verses, talk about some of the things that mark the ministry of this guy named Apollos. We've never met him before. And so we're going to look at what marked his ministry, and then really kind of hold up the mirror to the church of 1122, and talk about some of the things that we hope will mark our ministry as a church so that we can be on mission as a church. So uh, just to honor God's words, would you please stand up? And I know there's been a little stand up, sit down, but that's to make you Lutherans and Catholics feel like you're at church. All right, welcome. (laughs) See, we're a real church too. All right, here we go. Acts chapter 18, verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he had wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and they wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who, through grace, had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. May God add blessing to the reading and to the hearing of his word. Amen. You may be seated. All right. Acts chapter 18. um, Again, 
beginning in verse 24, we were just going to walk through. There's about 10 things that describe the ministry of Apollos. And I would love if, as we continue to grow and go as a church, that these would be the kind of things that mark our church. So verse 24, now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. The first one is this, and I put them all in your notes. The first one is this, that he was on the go. Um, He's from Alexandria. He goes to Ephesus. Later, he's going to go to Achaia. And so, um, and that's not Ikea, ladies, all right? Achaia. uh, It says right there in the scriptures, baby. No. uh, He is on the go. It's what we spent all of last week on, that as you are on the go, that we would make disciples. So you got to listen to last week if you want more on that. Then it says, now he was an eloquent man. Now, let's just be honest. I don't think very many people are going to walk out of the church of 1122 and say, now there's an eloquent man, all right? I'm pretty sure people are leaving here going, yeah, eloquence is what defines the, the teaching ministry of that church. In fact, I had a friend of mine tell me, He's like, man, I told this guy to go to your church, and I think he was trying to give me a compliment. And he said, you should go hear the pastor there. He's like a Christian version of Larry the Cable Guy. (laughs) I didn't really receive that as a compliment, so I complimented him back. Well, you know what? You don't sweat much for a fat fella, all right? So... So yeah, I get it. I don't, I don't think a lot of people are leaving here going, that was eloquent. The way he tied together deer hunting, duck dynasty, Georgia football, and the gospel all in one big bundle of eloquence. But, um, but I do want you to know that in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, Paul talks about his preaching ministry. And on, there's a wall right back here behind that screen, and my office is on the other side of that. And so when I walk from my office to this stage, we have these verses up on the wall. It's about six foot tall. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And, and this is kind of the attitude by which I stand in front of you to preach and teach every week. It says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among, among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. You have no idea the heaviness of the weight that I feel week after week after week. So I stand up here um, with much fear and trembling. In weakness, not because I don't think I'm going to do a good job. It's not like I'm trying to perform or keep us all engaged for the hour. It's not that whatsoever. But I just know the weightiness of what happens in this room. That there are some of you right now and, um, and you don't know Christ. And your future is a Christless eternity. A forever separated from Him. And today, as I lay out the gospel, I understand that literally life and death for all eternity hang in the balance. And there is a heaviness to that. There is a weightiness to that. Now, my job is not to entertain you. My job is just to to bring the gospel. And so it is with weakness and in fear and much trembling. In verse 4, And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. Like, I don't think anybody's walking out of here going, that dude is brilliant. I don't think anybody's doing that. But I hope and pray this is happening. But in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And so week after week after week, it might not be eloquent, it might not even be in in 
plausible or lofty speech, but what I try to do is just preach and teach in a way that is clear and that clearly communicates the love and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I can't explain to you what's happening in this place. Because sometimes you guys will send me an overwhelming amount of emails and Facebook messages about how amazing the sermon is. And after you read it 23 or 24 times, you go, maybe that was a good one. So I go back to the website and I watch my sermon that you said is awesome. And then I watch it and go, it was really like a C plus at best. It's not that good. I feel like I should have banjo music playing behind me as I'm trying to preach and teach. But what I know is, some of my friends, anytime you lead a, a, a growing church, every pastors just write books now, and so uh, they ask me, so when are you going to write a book? And I go, well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to write a preaching book, and it's going to be called Moderately Delivered, Exceptionally Received, because that's what happens here, okay? <laughs> Apparently, the Holy Spirit has like a little film right here, all right, a little filter, and I, and I think the, the delivery is very moderate at best, and then somehow he just takes it. And by the time it gets to you, it just lands in the right places, in the right hearts, and then the Holy Spirit just does stuff. So I think part of the reason God chose me to be a preacher is because, well, one, it's because I'm just like you. I'm just like you. All the regular dudes in the room, me too, okay? I'm not wearing a robe or a hat or a staff, and I don't have anything that, you know, smokes and swinging that around, all right? That's just not how I roll. I'm more like into camouflage and, and football and just regular stuff, all right? But I know that the Bible says that, that God could use the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And so I think when God was looking for a preacher for our church, he goes, hey, we need, we need that verse to just be personified. I got it. We'll take the redneck from Dylan and put him in charge. Take off, hoss. <laughs> so are we eloquent? Well, not in the way that we think of eloquent. But that word literally means learned or well-educated. That Apollos was well-educated. And so, um, uh, you may be surprised at this, but I, I do have a master's degree, a master's of divinity that I studied at a graduate level, you know, the Bible and theology and doctrine, and, and, did, and, I, and I went ahead and got the, the tough one to get, which is with, I uh, did Hebrew and Greek and, and did all of that. And so, if you look at this, this little phrase, eloquent man, competent in the scriptures, you really have to look at those two together. So, although we might not be eloquent in the way you think of eloquence, we do want to demonstrate the power of God by delivering the gospel week after week after week. And, and I do study a lot. I mean a lot. And the reason is because the next thing that describes Apollos, I want to describe us, that we want to be competent in the scriptures. We want to be competent in the scriptures. So in addition to the schooling I did a long time ago, week after week after week, I study about 16 to 20 hours a week to get ready for this, what we do right here every week. Because I want to be competent in the scriptures. I want to really know what it says. So, I mean, you know, not only do I study the word of God, but I also study commentaries and listen to lots of other pastors and just study. And I'm a little bit of a Bible nerd, so there's a part, part of the way I'm just wired. I just love that kind of stuff. But I do it over and over. It's been hour upon hour upon hour because I want to be competent in the scriptures. But not just that, because I know that the scriptures are competent. Not only are they true, but it's trustworthy. And so we're not going to get a lot, a lot of me just expounding on my own ideas about how you could be a better version of you. But week after week after week, what we are going to do is we're going to open up the Word of God and we're just going to walk through the Scriptures. And so, that, again, that word eloquent, it, it really means like well-educated, like he knows what he's talking about, and competent in the Scriptures. That word for competent is it, it, the word dynamos. We get, we get the word dynamite. 
It means powerful. And so I know that according to Isaiah chapter 55, if I just, I'm like the mailman, right? I I don't write the mail, I just deliver it. If I just deliver the mail every single week, that the word of God will do what the word of God is going to do. That by the power of the Holy Spirit, he will take his message from his word, plant it deep in your hearts, and then God will do in you what God is going to do. That's why if you look at our notes week after week after week, there's just a lot of Bible verses. There's not a lot of opinion from your pastor here. There's just a lot of Bible verses because we want to be learned in the Scriptures. We want to be competent in the Scriptures. But I want you to know that the Scriptures themselves are competent. And then it it, it keeps going. It says, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. So this is really kind of more of the same thing. That if you come to the church of 1122, then you are going to get instructed in the way of the Lord. That week after week after week, we're going to open up the scriptures and we're going to instruct you in the way of the Lord. You're not going to get a lot of instruction on how you can become a better version of you. You're just going to get instruction in the gospel. That just week after week after week, we're going to instruct you in the way of the Lord. I have a friend of mine who was asking me, he's planting a church, and he was asking me, um, do you preach felt need sermons? And I go, well, sort of. Because everybody needs Jesus, and I talk about Jesus every single week. And I don't know if you feel like you need him or not, but that's irrelevant. What you really need is Jesus. And so, we don't do a lot of like self-help type sermons here. And I know that we live in kind of a self-help craze society, right? If you go into Barnes & Noble, the largest section in the whole bookstore is what? Self-help. You know what the fallacy of the self-help movement is? They treat the problem as the solution, Like, you're the idiot that got you in the place where you're cruising Barnes & Noble looking for self-help books. You might not be the answer to your problems. I think you're the problem. And so, that's why why you won't show up to the Church of 1122 and get a bunch of, um, you know, hey, here's four ways to be a better version of you, and here's three ways to have better friends, and six ways to deal with doubt, because what we will do over and over and over is we'll just come back to the gospel, We'll just point it to the gospel. We'll just talk about you in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you're not a, a bad person that needs to be better. You're a dead person that needs to, needs to be brought to life by Christ, that you've been the Lord of your own life. And that's why you're rummaging around in the self-help section. And it's time to put the Lord as, as the Lord of your life. And then, and then we let the gospel illuminate all the stuff that we're dealing with, as opposed to just trying to deal with kind of that behavior management. Because in a lot of places, the way it works, I mean, I've got some friends of mine that have said, well, here's how we, here's how we do church. We, we poll the audience and kind of see what everybody's dealing with, and then we try to address the needs of what everybody's dealing with. So, for instance, everybody always wants to talk about money and finances and that kind of stuff, not give more to the church, but how you can have more for you. And so... Uh, <clears throat> And so the way it happens is a lot of places is churches will say, okay, look, a lot of our people are in debt, so we need to do something about debt, right? No, we need to teach our people about debt. The Bible talks about debt, so let's talk about debt. And so you get the creative team together and say, okay, folks, we're talking about debt, and we're going to do a four-week series called Debt is Dumb, all right? Debt is Dumb. And so, Ben, I need you and the band, why don't you write a song about debt is dumb? And then so finally you get to the day where we're going to talk about debt is dumb, and Ben comes out with the band, and he's like, if you got $3 and you spend 11 that's dumb, you know, and... <laughs> And then I come up and say, hey, look, the Bible says debt is dumb, right? And we walk through it all. And so here's four steps on how to get out of debt. And 
Do you know what the problem with that is? The problem is, is that you being in debt is not the problem. Do, do you really need to show up here on a Sunday morning for me to describe to you and explain to you if you don't have money for stuff, don't buy stuff? You really need to, if that's what you need, then you've got greater issues than I have time to deal with. The problem, it's a gospel problem. The problem is that you don't know who your identity in Christ is. Should, should you be in debt? No, you shouldn't be in debt. You should be a good store, steward of all that God has given you to steward in this life. But if you think just climbing out of credit card debt is going to change everything, then that's like mowing over the weed in your yard. It looks great until three minutes later when it rains again and then the weed pops right back up. But the gospel deals with the root issue. And the root issue is if you are trying to find your identity in the shiny things of this world, then you're just doing laps in the cul-de-sac of stupidity. Stuff did not buy me happiness, so I'll get more stuff and see if that buys me happiness. I mean, it's just an exercise in futility. You experience it every time you try on new clothes in the changing room. You walk in there and you look at these clothes and you think, these clothes are terrible. It must be the lighting. It's not the lighting, it's you, okay? That's you looking back at you. And you take those, those old clothes off and you throw them over there and you think, I can't even believe I used to wear that kind of junk. And then you put on some new clothes and you'd be like, ooh, yeah, man, this is awesome. You said that about those clothes six months ago. And now you'll just take another lap. And the cul-de-sac of stupidity, the reality is, is that it's a gospel problem. You need Jesus first and foremost. You need to surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ. Not so that you can get cash and prizes, but he is the prize. And then as he begins to renew you, and you begin to understand your fullness and worth in light of the gospel, then it affects the way you spend all of your money. So you see how we just teach in the way of the Lord? And then you just take whatever that problem is, and you just let the, the gospel illuminate the problems there. Some of you say, well, Pastor, I have a marriage problem. When are we going to talk about marriage? Well, you know what? If you've got a marriage problem, you've got a problem with the gospel. Ephesians 5.21, the, the preeminent text on marriage in the New Testament. It starts out with, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So if you haven't submitted your life to Christ, then husbands, you won't know how to be a husband. Wives, you won't know how to be a wife. Wife, you got no chance of submitting to your husband as unto the Lord if you haven't submitted to the Lord. Because he's perfect and you haven't submitted to him. And that joker sitting on your couch, you're going to have some difficult submitting to him as unto the Lord. And husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. If you're not loving her that way, then it's a gospel problem. So the answer isn't date night. Now, should you have date night as as a, as a response to the gospel, yeah, because Christ pursued us and you better keep pursuing her. So yes, but if you think date night's going to fix it, you're too dumb to talk to. You'll just be reading self-help books. And you know how I know they don't work? Because cause there's a volume two. If it worked, there'd just be one and done, but there's not. And so what we will do over and over and over is we will just instruct in the way of the Lord. We will seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added unto him. Now, yes, we'll talk about all of those other things. We'll talk about marriages and money and all of that kind of stuff, but from the point of view of the, of the cross, can I just tell you how much I love 
that, that our church meets in an old Walmart, that this literally was ladies' accessories. <laughs> and this used to be a place where some insecure woman thought she was going to find her identity in tacky Walmart jewelry. And now, there's a cross and the Bible and the gospel week after week after week after week. And we can pick on that insecure lady, all right? But her dumb husband was over there thinking a riding lawnmower would make the difference in his life, okay? So, we just, over and over, week after week, we just instruct in the way of the Lord. He goes on to say, and being fervent in spirit. Now, <clears throat> theologians and, and, and historians kind of, kind of wrestle over this one. They're not sure that the, the text makes it kind of hard to understand. It's a little ambiguous. Does this mean he was fervent in the Holy Spirit, like he was full of the Holy Spirit, or does this mean he was fervent in his own spirit, meaning passionate? Well, for our church, for the church of 1122, I'll take both. I'll take both in. I want our church to be a spirit-filled church, full of the Holy Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit, that God has an easy time directing us, that we lean strong into the Spirit's work in our life. And I also want our church to be a passionate church. We are a passionate church. We're passionate in the preaching and teaching. We're also passionate in the way that we worship God. And so if you're new to passionate worship like this, let me just tell you, the reason that the people are beside you are singing with the intensity that they're singing and the reason that that chick has her hands up next to you and she keeps elbowing you in the head, and you know, it's because this isn't just a belief system. But we actually believe that God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, that he loved you. He loved you enough that he would send his son on a rescue mission for you. And when we all get together, we celebrate that and we sing not just karaoke, but we sing to him. And if you come in, you're like, I don't really like the music. Well, Jimmy Cracks Corn. I don't care, because we ain't singing to you. I hope you understand that. This isn't like a concert where you get to go, hmm, that was good. I know. These are like the, the directors of the play. We all together out here are the actors, and God is the audience of one. And so we think he's kind of into it when we sing him songs about, about the gospel and about who he is and what he's done for us. And so there's freedom in this place to kind of get into it. Now, I, let me just tell you, I'm not sure, again, last week we talked about those of you that worship like this, like you were weaned on a pickle, so I just need you to know that I'm not sure how you encounter the almighty living God and you're full of the Holy Spirit and you knew what a wretch you were. I mean, you were just wretched and crooked and depraved and hopeless and on your way to hell and that God would reach down and redeem and save you. I'm not sure how when you've experienced that fully and then you gather at the big old family reunion every weekend and we're going to sing to our Heavenly Father that there's not some Abba Father welling up in you. And that you're going to reach out to him. And it can be a little emotive and a little expressive, okay? I know that when I go home and my three-year-old Reagan sees me walk in the door, she doesn't just go, what's up? She runs to me with her hands up saying, Daddy. And that's a little bit of what worship is in this place. So if you're new to church and it weirds you out, I understand. But if you came on a date with me and Gretchen, it would weird you out a little bit too. You would think, oh, whoa, this is intimate, right because I really love her. And if I was sitting across from her at a restaurant and we were talking intimately, you would feel awkward at the table. So if you're new to church and you're kind of like, wow, the people around me are into this, it's because they actually believe it. 
They're fervent in spirit. And so for some of you, you know, that you've gotten your hands from here to here, I just want you to know, you know, the Bible says raise your hand in the sanctuary. So you have freedom in this place, all right? Freedom in this place. To, and we want this place to be a, a place that, that worships and just loves God passionately, that we are fervent in spirit. It goes on to say, and he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. That we want to speak and teach accurately the things concerning Jesus. That doctrine matters. That theology matters. When I was being trained, like in seminary, um, we were sort of taught that you had to make a decision. You could have a kind of a passionate, expressive kind of church, you know, where everybody, it was kind of a bring your own tambourine and banner kind of church, or you could teach the Bible and be doctrinally accurate. Well, see, I think it's a false dichotomy that I think that to look at God rightly stirs in us worship for who he is and what he's done, that doctrine matters, that theology matters. Let me explain it to you this way. If I were, my wife's sitting on the front row. If I were to take her home this afternoon and say, sit down right there, baby. And I got on one knee and just said, I love you so much. I mean, there's something that's just stirring in me right now. I love you more. She loves it when I do this when y'all are all here for it too, okay? <laughs> I love you so much. I love you more today than I did when, when we got married. And the thing I love you most about you is I love the way the sun glistens off your bright red hair. I just love it. Now, you would say, well, what's wrong with that? She didn't have red hair. That's going to be problematic for me, right, husbands? Yeah, really problematic. So doctrine matters. You've got to get those things right that are about God. And so we, we will study and teach accurately about Jesus because it matters. And so that's why we just open up the word and every week, just verse by verse by verse through his word. And so it says, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Though, he knew only the baptism of John. I'll come back to that. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. One of the marks of the church of 1122 is that we will speak and preach and teach boldly the truths of the scripture. That we will not shy away from controversial subjects. We will not shy away or, or cower down just to the movements of our culture. Now, that doesn't mean that we will just try to stir stuff up and poke people in the eye just to kind of tick them off, because there's a lot of churches that do that too. That's not what we're trying to do. But we want to teach accurately the Scriptures and speak boldly the truth that is God's Word. Now, <clears throat> a big part of what that means, like, like one of the boldest things you can say that really stands against the ultimate idol in our society, and that idol is tolerance, what one of the boldest things you can say is that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. I mean, people would say, how in the world can you be so intolerant? Well, listen, tolerance is not a biblical value, okay? Tolerance is not a biblical value. Love is. We are not called to tolerate people. We're called to love them. Tolerate means I'll just put up with you. If you stay over there, I'll stay over here, and I can just kind of put up with you. No, 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 we are not called to coexist. We are not, I coexist with the gators. You understand what I'm saying? Like, I, I uh, kind of understand you're out there. It's not your fault. You were raised in it. You can't help it. But I don't, I don't, I, I'm not called to just, I, I love, I have to love. I have to love your enemies. That's what we've been called to do. Love. And so, at the church of 1122, we love people enough to lovingly say, you are not just a mistaker in need of a life coach. You're a sinner in need of a savior. It is not love for me to overlook the fact that you are 
living a life apart from God, your creator, and that the only way for you to have the life that you were created to live is to surrender your life to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Is it narrow? Yes, it's narrow. But I'm just quoting him. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So on the one hand, it's narrow, but on the other hand, he says that everybody's welcome. Everybody's welcome. Everybody gets in the same way, and Christ has paid the price for us all. And so we will not just tolerate one another, and we will not just tolerate this city we live in and tolerate the world that we live in and hope that we can just coexist. We're going to love people enough to say, you. The problem is that you're not just bad, but you're dead. You're an enemy of God, an almighty, perfect God, and you've earned his wrath. But God is rich in mercy. His love endures forever. And even when you were still a sinner, he demonstrated his love for you in this, that he sent Christ to endure the full wrath of an almighty God so that you could be made righteous, you could be in right relationship with God. And week after week after week, we will boldly proclaim the gospel. Boldly proclaim the gospel. And it's because we love you. Look, when I was a kid in first grade, the most popular restaurant in Dillon, South Carolina, was right down the road from my house, two blocks. Um, It's McDonald's. It was like the nicest place. And so, we kind of a busy street, you know, for Dillon. And so, me and my friend Joey Peel are riding our bicycles in front of my house in the street. And my mom comes out there screaming her head off. Joseph Perry Martin III, quit riding your bicycle in the street. Just screaming, you know, scare you to death kind of scream. And I pull over to the curb, and I'm kind of mad. I go, Mama, if you don't love me, if you love me, you wouldn't yell at me. And she said, scream back. If I didn't love you, I would let you ride your bike in the street. And my man Joey right here behind me, I can hear him kind of start going, mm-hmm. he starts crying. <laughs> Joey Peel, what is wrong with you? And he goes, my mama lets me ride in the street. <laughs> I'm just going to tell you, because Christ first loved us and rescued us, we love you enough to tell you the truth. To tell you the truth. Trying to be good will never be good enough. You've got to surrender your life to Christ. That God made him who was without sin to be sin for us, that we would be made his righteousness. It's not about going to church and being a better person, being a better version of you, and cussing less, and drinking less, and working harder. We think that those things may happen as a result of you knowing Jesus. So you've got to surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus. And that also means that we're not, at the Church of 1122, we're not going to try to give Jesus a makeover so he'll be more palatable to your neighbors and friends. Hey, if you're a guest, praise God, thank you so much that you're here. Thank you. We're expanding this place so more of you and your friends and family can join our family and love Jesus and worship Jesus. But Jesus doesn't need a makeover. We're not going to bleach his robe and give him a new Miss America sash and feather his hair and, and leave out some of the things that he taught. It was a brutal death that he died on the cross for you. Brutal. He endured the full wrath of an almighty God. He screamed out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he was telling everybody, I am the Christ, the Lamb of God that has come to take away the sin of the world. And we love you enough to diagnose the problem that you're a wretched, black-hearted sinner. And so am I. But I'm redeemed. I'm saved. I'm rescued. And you can be too through Christ. And so, Apollos, he would speak Boldly. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. The seventh one. Or the eighth one. 
But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So, um, I hope I can do a good job of explaining this. So, we've already established, or the text has already established, that, that Apollos was an incredible preacher. I mean, he was eloquent, he was competent in the scriptures, he taught accurately about Jesus, he was fervent in spirit, he spoke boldly, all of those things are great. But then Priscilla and Aquila come along and they hear him teaching and they think, man, this guy is really good. He's got some gifts and talents and he loves Jesus and preaches the word, but he's kind of messing up the whole baptism thing. That's what it means when it says he only knew of the baptism of John. So what most historians and theologians believe is that Apollos probably got saved during Jesus's earthly ministry. And so he believed that he was the Lamb of God that came to take away the sin of all mankind and that he taught accurately about Jesus so he knows about his death and resurrection but he probably was not there when Christ ascends into heaven and gives the great commission to go and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So he knows of the baptism of John, a baptism of repentance, but he doesn't know of the baptism of Jesus, this, this Christian baptism to declare your personal relationship with Jesus, this baptism of forgiveness. And he probably wasn't around on the day of Pentecost when, though he personally had the Spirit, he didn't realize that the Holy Spirit of God had fallen on the church, the Big C Church, and that there was a Spirit-driven life that was available to the Christian. So, um, Priscilla and Aquila, they hear him teaching, and they love him enough to not talk about him, but talk to him. They love him enough to not start a blog and a Facebook page about Apollos's, you know, heretical teaching, but they go and it says, do you see the maturity here? It says that um, they, they took him away or they say to him, in other words, what they do is they take him privately and they instruct him in the way of God more accurately. So one of the things that marks Apollos that I want to mark us as a church is that Apollos was a humble learner. And at the church of 1122, we are going to position ourselves as humble learners um, think about the humility it took for Apollos, this incredible teacher who was a first century Jewish man. Who was he by, being taught by? Priscilla and Aquila, a woman and a man, that he humbles himself under her teaching. That was, I mean, I can't describe to you how big a deal that was in the first century. And, and he didn't push back on that and say, who do you think you are to tell me what to do? All right, listen to all these people listening to me. And you just got saved last chapter, all right, during week two of on mission. So who do you think you are? None of that. He humbles himself and he learns from them. So <clears throat> things are going exceedingly well at the Church of 1122. It couldn't be going better, all right? We're 11 months old. We're in a building campaign. I mean, it's going really, really, really great. Lot, hundreds of people coming to Christ. People are growing marriages are being renewed and fam I mean, just crazy. Everything's just up and to the right and amazing. And let me just say this, church, and we're not there yet. We will not strut around as if we know what we're doing. Absolutely not. We have so much to learn. We will continuously put ourselves um, in a position to be a student first and not a critic. We live in a society where everybody's critical of everybody. That will not be the posture at the Church of 1122. There are lots of people in this city and around the world that have so much that they can teach us about what it means to be a church and ways that we could do things better and teach us even more accurately the things of God. For instance, you know, we're doing the, this revival in September. 
saturated. We want to be saturated in the presence of God and the word of God and the love of God. I've invited all these pastors from different churches, different kinds of churches to come in here and to preach and teach. And for 21 days before that saturated event starts, we're calling our church to a Daniel fast, all right, to a Daniel fast. Some of you don't even know who Daniel is. You're like, I don't, he's three rows down from me. Who's Daniel? Okay, Daniel's a guy in the Old Testament that gets captured by, by this king. And so he feels like God's leading him to not eat the king's food or drink of the king's wine. And so it's kind of based on that description that Christians for a long time have said, all right, we're going to only eat the things that Daniel ate in the Old Testament as a way to fast. And some of you will look at that and be like, oh, the king's wine. Well, I I can still drink my box wine. I think I'm okay. I don't drink king's wine. And I'm just going to admit, all right, I I was ordained Southern Baptist. It's not like the epicenter of fasting. You know what I mean? It just, just wasn't a part of kind of how we grew up in our walk with Jesus. But Jesus talks a whole lot about fasting. And so we're going to call our church to fast. And so what I've done, if I've invited in someone, another pastor in our city, Pastor Stovall Weems at Celebration Church, to help us so that we can learn a little about what it means to fast. That's why we made his books available out here in the lobby, Okay because um, he's kind of an expert on it, and in particular, the Daniel fast. And what I love so much about his book is Pastor Stovall, the expert, says that in the Daniel fast, you can drink coffee. Praise Jesus. Because there's some heretics out there that say you can't. And anybody tells you you can't drink coffee, that's a cult, and you should run away, all right? So... So if you, don't, if you need help with that, like, I, need, I got the book, okay? I need help with it, too. That we will be a church that just humbly learns from others. Um, I'm in two coaching relationships with pastors that have been, been lead pastors at their church for more than 10 years each. I'm in a group of, um, I'm in this group where, where pastors with growing churches under 40, I just made it in, under 40, uh, got invited to be a part of this, this network where a few times a year we get together and these older pastors, these guys that have been doing it for 20 years plus, where they, they pour into us. There are men and women all throughout this room right now that are great leaders in whatever industry God has them in. And I just sit under those men and women and just look forward to them pouring into me. Once a month in our staff meetings, we bring leaders from really all over our city. Like, whether they lead churches or not. Pastor Stovall's come in and taught, but also the mayor's going to come in and teach. And restaurant owners and CEOs and presidents and all kind of leaders. Just come in and teach us as a staff. And the reason is because I want to continuously position us as a church to be a humble learner. That we will know that, that, that we might be able to help some other people, but we, are, we know that we have not arrived yet. And there's so much that we have to learn. We are going to be a student first and not a critic. Verse 27. And when he wished, wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. Um, the ninth thing is that he received encouragement through fellowship. He received encouragement through fellowship. That, that Apollos had some real, like, uh, uh, biblically-based, rooted, deep-rooted relationships with, with some people that he could call brothers. In your disciple-making process, I think this is a major part of it. I think you being here on the weekend and us doing Bible study together for an hour every single week, I think that's a major part of it. But something that you have to have in your life is your life needs to be marked by true biblical fellowship. You need some people in your life when you think God is calling you to do something that you've got some brothers and sisters that can encourage you. 
I'm just going to say it's going to be hard to find that just by sitting in rows on the weekend. Again, I think this is a major part of your discipleship, but I think you've got to take it to the next step and get in true biblical fellowship where you can have brothers and sisters that encourage you. Do you know how easy we've made it at the Church of 1122? Look, this is on you. If you want to get connected here, we called the thing the Connect Center. It's the center of connection. You just walk back there and go, I'd like to get connected. And I know it's 2013, but we have real live human beings there that will help you get connected to other real live human beings. I know you have 600 friends on your Facebook. Way to go. Your mama's proud. But it's irrelevant. You've got to have actual people in your world that, that, <clears throat> that you can call brother and sister and that encourage you. So please get involved there. And then it says, and when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. That, the, that Apollos wasn't just about converting large crowds, he was about making disciples. That the church of 1122, look, we praise God for the numbers of people that are showing up right now. Because we know that every number is a person, every person has a story, every story matters to God. But we also know that that conversion moment, that moment when you surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ, that's just the beginning of the discipleship process that we've been commanded to make disciples. And so we are just concerned about you growing in Christ as we are and you meeting him for the first time, that we want you to discover and deepen that relationship with Jesus. And then it finishes off about Apollos in this. It says, For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. That he taught the scripture and he pointed to Jesus. He taught the scripture, he pointed to Jesus. That's what marked his ministry. He taught the scripture and he pointed to Jesus. Now, here's what I know. I know that vision leaks and mission drifts. Just like we started. I know that churches start out one way. They start out about Jesus and it's not long and it's just kind of about bake sales and softball leagues, okay? And so we want to continuously just teach the scripture and point back to Jesus. And so for us to stay on mission as a church, we've got to stay firmly established in the word, and we've got to forcefully advance his kingdom. We've got to teach the scripture. We've got to point to Jesus. I learned that so well this week in my very own home. You know, school started this week, and so um, <clears throat> JP moved to a, a new school. We love it. It's great. Uh, and he, so he's got new friends. He's playing with this, this kid out in our front yard, and he, a new friend, brand new friend, and he comes up to me, and he says, Daddy, I've got to talk to you about my new friend. I'm like, what's up, buddy? And he leans in and he goes, he says all the bad words. Now, as a parent, when I hear he says all the bad words, you know what I think? You better watch your mouth. That's what I think. In Proverbs 4.23, the Bible says, above all else, guard your heart. It is the wellspring of life. So the Bible says guard your heart. What most of the time we do is say watch your mouth or watch your step. And so I talked to J JP a little bit, you know, and he says, Daddy says all the words, says the F word and the S word and the L word. And I'm thinking, L word? Well, I don't even know, but I didn't ask him to repeat it because I don't, you know. <laughs> no, there was an L word. <clears throat> and so, so we talked about it a little bit, and then, then the next day I'm here at work, and um, there's this group of girls that kind of hang out at my house. My wife sort of disciples them, and they're just kind of there a lot. And so JP just kind of runs into the house, and he goes, I need my action Bible. I need my action Bible. And, uh, and Dakota, one of our new gen staff, she's, she's at my house, and she goes, well, why? What's going on? He goes, because my friend's out there, and I, I need to, he's the one that says all the bad words, and I need to tell him about the gospel. 
That's what he says. Now, let me just tell you, that, that, is, that is a result of, I mean, we, we love Jesus and try to disciple our kids and, and raise them in the gospel, but that's also partnering with our new gen staff here that have partnered with us to help us all together raise our kids in the glory and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he comes in, he goes, I need my Bible. And so he gets his action Bible, which one of the new gen staffers gave to him as a president a couple years ago. And so then he heads right back out the door to share the gospel with his friend, his words. And so this little group of girls, they don't, they don't really respect, you know, personal privacy. That's why they're in my house all the time. And so they just, they go out into the garage to eavesdrop on JP. <clears throat> and say so JP gets out there with his action Bible in hand, and he just looks directly at his friend, and he goes, hey, calls his name. He says, do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Kid's like, no, I don't think so. So JP says, well, he's the, he's the son of God. And God sent him to come on this earth and to die on a cross for our sins. See, and then he opens the Bible. It's his favorite picture. And he just goes to the action Bible and finds all the blood pictures. That's what he does. Okay, he's got a mark. And so he just opens up to the picture of Jesus on the cross. And he begins to kind of describe who Jesus is. I mean, he's just laying out the gospel to the seven-year-old. And then the kid goes, oh, I think I've heard of him. All right? And so then J.P. folds up his Bible and he says, do, you, do y'all go to church? And the kid's like, nah, we, you know, we're kind of busy. We just hang out on Sundays. And J.P. says, tell your mom, go inside and tell your mom to Google the church of 1122. <laughs> and if they'll come there, Pastor Joby will tell your parents about Jesus. And if you'll come to New Gym with me, you can learn more about Jesus. And then he says, do you want to hear some more about him? And the kid's like, not really. And he's like, all right. So he just comes back in the house, drops off his Bible, high-fives him, and says, I just shared the gospel, and then he runs right back out. Now listen. Now look, he's no saint, okay? So don't let me, I know I, I can share lots of other stories too. But <clears throat> here's what I was confronted with. As a parent, just as a guy, when I encounter sin, most of the time, I think, watch your mouth, watch your step. You got to fix that. But my seven-year-old, when his first thought was, do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? So that's the kind of church I want our church to be. That we're a church for all people, all kind of people. And if you got some junk, you walk in with junk, you just, that just means you're one of us. But the response is not watch your mouth and watch your steps. The response is, above all else, guard your heart. Is Jesus the Lord of your heart? And so regardless of who you are, where, where you've been, or what you have done, even if we're talking about what you've done was last night, let me just ask you this. Do you know Jesus? And then let me tell you this too, Christians. Don't think that the gospel is to help unsaved people get saved. Yes and amen, but it's not just from them, okay? That, that we as believers in Christ need to constantly remember the gospel it's not like you meet Jesus at the cross and then you start growing off in this other direction. That means you would move further and further away from the cross. That you'd never graduate from the gospel. you never graduate from the cross. We just need to constantly be reminded that God knew what he was getting into when he purchased you. That if you could have a conversation at your conversion and say, Lord, are you sure? Because I, I think I got a lot of sin still left in me. He goes, yeah, I know the deal and I'm going to get into it. I'll take you as you are And that's why I died on the cross. Because it's not going to be you just getting to be better. But you need to die to yourself and surrender your life unto me. 
And that's why the Bible says things like God demonstrated his love for us in this. That while we were yet still sinners, that Christ died for us. And it says things like, for God so loved the world that whosoever, did you know you're a whosoever? That whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So let me ask you the question that my seven-year-old evangelist in my house asked this week. Not about control your behavior, but do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Do you know that God sent his only son for you? To die on the cross for you? That God made him who was without sin to be sin for us, that we could be made his righteousness, that we could be in a right relationship with him? Not by going to church more, not by saying magic words in a prayer, not by raising our hands, but by surrendering our life to the lordship of Christ. Not by your performance here on earth, but by his performance on the cross and his resurrection. That you could know Jesus as your savior. Would you please bow your head right where you are? If you were here this morning and for the very first time you would like to know Jesus as your savior. Maybe you've known about him. Maybe you've even got some church background. Or maybe... uh, You've never really been to church. And this might be the first one where you've ever thought that you could come back. But today, you, regardless of who you are or what you've done, for the very first time are ready to surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ. And you would say, I want to know Him. I want to surrender my life and know Christ as my Savior. Would you raise your hand right where you are? And those of you with your hand in there, raise it high. And I want you to just talk to God in whatever words that you want to use. There's no magic words. This isn't an incantation. It's a prayer. And you just admit to God that you are a sinner. You are far from God. That you would believe in Jesus and that you would confess him as your Lord and Savior. And the Bible says that you, even in this moment, are being saved. That your sins are washed away by what Christ did on the cross and through his resurrection. And new life today begins in you. Dear Father in heaven, Lord, thank you so much that there's salvation in this place. Thank you that you love us, God. Thank you that you pursue us, God. Thank you. Thank you for the example that you gave me this week. And Lord, I pray as a church, I pray as a church, whenever we encounter sin, God, we would just ask the question, do you know Jesus? And that whosoever would be invited to come to know Jesus. God, I pray that this would always be a safe, safe, safe place, a safe church to hear a message that's dangerous to the way we live. And so God, we love you because you first love us. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen you would please stand. We respond to the gospel every week. God initiates and we respond. He initiated by coming after us on the cross and he initiated today by by sending out his word. And so we respond. We respond by all singing together. We respond by coming to the altar and just dealing with some stuff with you and your heavenly father. And, And if you call this church your home church, then we respond by bringing our tithes and offerings to the giving boxes around the room or the giving kiosk in the back. However you need to respond, I hope you will. Let's respond.